late in the week, I, um, I decided to change my entire message. We were going to do 1 Corinthians again, get back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, second half of that chapter. And I'm sitting there Thursday morning, and I'm going, something don't feel right. So I, I decided to change it and, and to talk about a mom. Uh, I wasn't going to do a classic Mother's Day passage, but, and I don't even know, I guess, I don't know if this is classic or not, but I'm, anyway, I'm doing it. So uh, you, it's a name that you probably... Well, you've all heard because you just read it, Hannah. Everybody's heard the name now, even even before. She became the mother of Samuel, the prophet. And she lived in a very foul time, in a very foul place. And uh, you'd have to look far and wide to find people in the day that she lived who were really following after God, who really wanted to do God's work. And it was a, it was a very dark, dark time. And it, but in the, in the dark time, there's always a glimmer. God always leaves a glimmer, a little faint hope, a little, you know, flickering light. And that little flickering light was a woman by the name of Hannah. And her story is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you might want to just look at that. And, and, and the period that 1 Samuel covers, I think it's the first six or seven chapters. I forgot to look. But it's, it's, it's you know, not too far into the book. Uh, it, it's talking about the time when the judges stu- still ruled in Israel. And it would be unfair to call the judges a bunch of losers, but it would not be unfair to characterize them as a group, as a group, with a couple of notable exceptions, but as a group with a lot to be desired as leaders, just left a lot to be desired. I mean, you, you know, you got Christian bookstores, and they got little dolls of Samson that you bring home for your little boys to play with, but you really don't want your little boys to grow up to be like Samson, okay? I mean, the best thing Samson ever did was die. Honestly, it was the best thing he ever did. He was not a good person. Not a good person. But this woman, Hannah, was different. She started out like everyone else in her culture, but something happened along the way that changed her forever. Something happened that catapulted her above and beyond her culture, and literally, she went from chains and shackled to being set free. And it all centered around being a mother. In the process of the course of her life, uh, something happened that we're going to look at this morning that changed her. And look, whenever mom is changed, everybody else is affected, right? I mean, that, that's the truth. All right, well, the first thing you need to know is that this woman, uh, Hannah, was no stranger to pain. A lot of pain. In fact, if you read the text carefully, you'll see that she was a woman whose daily life was, you know, ensconced in sort of I don't think it's too much to say misery. Misery. I think it's true uh, of most of us, men and women, that you can handle the outward stuff. You know, all the circumstances, the brutalities of life. You can handle that to a real, a real degree if you know that God is with you. If you have the assurance that Almighty God, who set the planets out there, is still with you. That Romans 8, He still loves you. There's something about that where you could, you know, you can kind of pull together. You know he's on your team. But when you think he doesn't hear, when you think he doesn't care, then sometimes that pain can almost be too much to bear. Now, Hannah spent a lot of time, as we read in chapter 1, she spent a lot of time praying and a lot of times crying. Isn't it interesting how those two go together a lot of times? crying and praying go together a lot of times. And we see her crying and we see her praying, but she was crying and praying due to one particular situation in her life that made her feel as though she was walking through life with 25-pound weights tied around each leg. And here's what it was. She wanted a child, but she couldn't have a child. 
She couldn't bear a child. This is a profoundly personal and very painful situation that, you know what, I think only other, other women can understand. In verse 7, speaking of her thinking about this situation that went on and on for years, it simply said that she wept. It says she wept. This woman's soul was in agony. But when we think of somebody weeping, uh, I don't know, sometimes we think of someone just, you know, kind of quietly crying in a corner somewhere. That's not what the word means. The word li literally means to wail audibly, to, you know, kind of loud wails of pain coming from this woman because she came to a situation one day where all of a sudden she thought about it for the 50,000th time and all, she just couldn't control herself anymore. And we find that in chapter, in chapter 1 that she's wailing loudly, a moan of pain. But it wasn't just due to the fact that she couldn't have a child. Uh, she was living in a very poisoned situation. She lived right in the very middle of a very broken family dynamic. She was one of a third of a polygamous relationship. She was one of two wives of Elkanah. And if you look at the Bible, you will never see a situation where there's polygamy, where things work out well. It's never a good thing. It usually destroys everything. And you don't have to be a genius, really, to figure out why this is. Jealousy, competition always comes into play. Because why? It was never meant to be that way. It was never meant to be that way. And what made this broken family situation even worse was what always happens. The husband favored one wife over the other. Verse 5 says that he loved her, Hannah, he loved her more. And you say, well, that's, that's good for Hannah, you know? Three cheers for Hannah. But it wasn't a good thing, okay? Because could you imagine the rocky relationship that she had with the woman who shared the home with her? It is not a good foundation at all. His sentiments infuriated this other wife, a woman by the name of Paniah. And he destroys his other wife, Paniah, by favoring Hannah, who's in, you know, in this embittered state of mind, seeks to tear down the favored wife. Do we all get this? This isn't a big deal. We, all, we can all understand how something like this can happen. So if you're Paniah, how, what's the best way, and you're embittered now, you're embittered because, you know, your husband favors the other wife. And how, how do you get back at the other wife? What's the best way to get back at the other wife? Well, one way to do it might be to regularly bring up the other wife's most sensitive area in her life. You know, kind of stick your finger in the wound, so to speak. And the most sensitive area in Hannah's life was what? She couldn't bear children. So to bring it up continually, day after day after day, Hannah is a woman who is thundering, who's wailing in grief and wailing in pain and in anguish. She has this enormous pain because she can't have children, and she is reminded of that fact every hour of every day by her rival. Now, I got to tell you, we can feel sympathy for her, no question. Uh, some women here, I know, can even feel empathy because of the situation that Hannah was going through. Every single one of us knows a woman in that situation or who, who may be in that situation right now or has been like that at one time or another. You know, I, well, we, we all know somebody. 
which makes, by the way, this, this Sunday, Mother's Day, makes it tough. Makes it very, very tough for you, and I know that. And let me say this, though, and, and, and with, with as much uh, sympathy that I could produce, I have to say this with all due respect. The pain that Hannah was battling, I think, uh, was far deeper than anyone here probably could experience, having the exact same problem. And, and again, with all due respect, and I'm gonna, here's why. I'm going to try to explain why. First of all, in the ancient society, your family's economic status, your family's economic wealth, depended in large measure on how many children you had. Didn't matter what your business uh, uh, was, whether you're a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, it really didn't matter. The more people you had to put into the labor force, the more money you generally made, and the higher economic and social standing you would have as a family and as individuals. You had only a few children, you didn't do that well. The economic welfare of the family depended on the strength and the numbers of the workforce. Now, since only about four of ten children lived to adulthood in those days, and there was no such thing as Social Security or government benefits, you literally were in very, very serious trouble as an old person if you didn't have lots of what? Kids! You didn't have a lot of children. They were your Social Security. Another thing. Another reason why childbearing was so important was because of the brutal operating nature of the clans and the families and the nations back then. If your clan or tribe had a very low birth rate, but your rivals, you know, eight miles, you know, around the river, through the hill and over, over there, if they had a very high birth rate, what's, what is a high probability that could happen sometime in your lifetime? You get taken over. Okay, someone would come in, they got a lot more people, and they'd, they'd swoop down, and, and basically, it could, having children was a matter, literally, of life and death. Women who had lots of children, you know what they were? They were the heroes. You know, you got six sons. I mean, people basically, you know, cleared the way when you came walking downtown. I mean, it was, that was the best thing you could ever do. They were the ministers of defense of the nation. By, by bearing children, they ensured a protective net around the clan for the future. That'll, if you had a lot of children, especially male children, like I said, you were the heroes of the nation. When a woman today says, I desperately want a child, okay, we all understand that, we all get it, and we all understand that they're talking emotionally about wanting a child. They've thought about it since they were little girls. You know, when, when they first, you know, they got engaged, and then they got married, they're saying, well, if we have a little boy, he's going to look like this. If we have a little girl, he's going to look like this. They were thinking about that. You know, it's emotional. It's something. But, but Hannah's situation was different. Yes, there was an emotional side, no question, no doubt about it. But childbearing was also a matter of life and death. And since there was an enormous cultural pressures on women to have children, it is not a stretch at all to say that a woman who could not have children were considered worthless in the eyes of the community, and when the community looks at you as worthless, you know what happens a lot of times? You start looking at yourself as worthless. They were disgraced. Women who cannot bear children in 2018, we feel sympathy for. Nobody's looking down on them. Nobody's looking down on them. There were enormous cultural pressures involved. When you understand these enormous cultural pressures, along with 
the normal desire that women have for children, women, in a real sense, were set up perfectly, or shall I say, imperfectly, to find themselves pointing in a direction where they would bow down and be in an idolatrous situation when it comes to childbearing and it came to family things. Nobody forces anybody to walk down the road. But you know what? Sometimes culture has a way to take you by the shoulders behind, and you're pointing that way, and they go, and you start walking. That's the way it is. Now, let me just take a half quarter step back. And uh, I just talked about idolatrous situations. What is an idol? I mean, what is an idol? An idol is something that in itself may be neutral, may even be good, may be a good thing. But it's a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. And that's where the, the negative stuff comes in. A good thing, you know, any other time that you could enjoy, you may enjoy, all of a sudden it becomes the very center of your life. It becomes your source of self-esteem, what you glory in, what you think about in your daydreaming times and you think about it again and again. It tells you that you are in some way, some weird way, worthwhile, that you are worthy of honor, that you are worthy of meaning. Uh, you know, to, and there's meaning in life because of this thing. Tim Keller wrote this. He said, an idol becomes, and this is not overstating the fact, an idol becomes your functional salvation. It is your real hope. No matter what we say is like, oh, I'm not putting my hope in this, that, or the other thing. Yes, you are. That's how you know it's an idol. You're nothing, Hannah, because you don't have children. Hannah was pushed into idolatry by her culture. That's pretty terrible, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's I mean it, it, it really is awful. It honestly is awful. But I wonder if the same sort of pressures are not still bearing down on men, and in particular women, as culture tries to shove them towards an idolatrous lifestyle. In a culture where the clan or the tribe is all important, where the clan's needs were always put above the uh, individual's needs, they tended to say things like, you're nothing if you don't have kids. Pretty common. Well, we don't live in a culture like that, do we? Community comes second. What comes first? The individual. In, our, in 2018, the United States of America, the individual is the most important thing. Individual achievement and attainment is all important. We find competition exhilarating. I mean, you know, when, when people in the same clan now, they're, you know, they're doing it, going against one another. That, that's kind of, that, that, that's a blast. We don't say to women who can't have kids, you're worthless. We don't. We have another message for women today. I saw a quote of one celebrity who had for years struggled with drug addiction and had recently lost a whole bunch of weight. This is what she said. She said, I took more hell for being fat than I did for being an absolute raging drug addict, and I will never understand that. 2015 study said that girls are twice as likely than boys to report feeling, quote, sad or hopeless for weeks at a time during, during that year. The report said that 40% of girls in grades 9 through 12 reported having been sad or hopeless in the previous year as compared to 20% of boys of the same age. Rates were highest among Hispanic female students, 47%. 
The study showed that female high school students have significantly higher rates of depression, anxiety disorder, eating disorders than their male counterparts. One Christian psychologist wrote this, perhaps the most inescapable conclusion I have drawn from psychological counseling of women concerns the commonness of depression and emotional apathy as a recurring fact in their lives. G.L. Clearman and M.M. Weissman reviewed all the literature on depressing depression research in women and tested for factors ranging from genetics, PMS, birth control pills, and they found that one of the prime factors for female depression was, quote, a perception of low social status. If you are attractive, you are socially acceptable and desirable, and if you're not, you're not. You're not. And the studies have already shown that most women believe that they are not. Well, now what? Mary Pfeiffer draws a picture of the agony most young girls go through as they compare their bodies to the cultural ideals and find themselves always, always wanting. Pfeiffer said that when she goes to a college campus and asks if anyone, and she's been all over the country, asks if anyone has a friend with an eating disorder, every single hand goes up. Every hand. Pfeiffer said this, in all the years I've been a therapist, I've yet to meet one girl who likes her body. Why? Because they perceive that their lack is keeping them from social acceptability, at least in their minds. And folks, I have to tell you something right now. Social media has made the problem. Ten times worse. Just telling you. Let me, let me ask the women something. Not that I should be asking it. I'm a guy. But let me, let me ask you something. Because I, I just, I'm just saying this is probably true. Yeah, you know, you're talking to someone who's obviously an attractive woman. You're, you're a woman. You're talking to an obviously attractive woman. And she says something like, oh, I look terrible. Look at my fill in the blank. Okay? Not going there. You know, I get a little bit. You know, hair, feet, teeth. Skin, that's as far as I can go, okay? And, and, and she says that to you. And as she says that to you, you know in your heart that you would consider homicide if it meant that you could trade places with her. You know it. You say to yourself, if she's terrible, then I need to ensconce myself in a burlap bag and just call it quits right now. I need to begin wearing a bag over my head for that matter. See, I don't think women had eating disorders back in Hannah's day. Why? Because the social pressures were of a different kind, but they were just as devastating. They were just as devastating. Women and men, how would you answer this question? I feel like I am somebody if I get a PhD from a respected university. I feel like I will be somebody if I get a full athletic scholarship to a college and, and start as a freshman, okay? I feel like I am somebody if I get the corner office with a view of the city. If I, if I have a house that is the envy of the block. If my kids excel in all aspects of life. If I win the school board election. If I attract that guy or that girl. If I get that summer internship. If my father is proud of me. If the woman at the motor vehicles, you know, took my picture for the license and says, 45! You don't look a day past 35 if I marry, if I have children. See, Hannah was a nobody. She was nobody. 
couldn't bear children. And what made a bad situation completely intolerable was that she was continually reminded of that fact in her own little family unit. She was a woman in great pain, brought about largely by her oppressive culture. Now listen, you can only escape the idle system of your culture when you make God's love more important to you than anything else. Elkanah, this is such a guy thing. Elkanah, you got me. I'm better, you know, aren't I better than 10 sons? Okay, look at this guy in front of you, you know. I mean, that's kind of like in our world a little bit, you know. We'll find spousal love. Spouse, folks, I got news here. It's not even spousal love, even though it's more like our culture. Because what you're going to do, if you find your, your center in spousal love, you will absolutely crush that individual. There's no doubt about it in my mind. I've seen it a thousand times. If your all in all is that spouse, is that guy, is that woman, you know what? You will eventually kill them because they can't come up to your expectations. They never will be able to do that. This woman in great pain, you know, her husband walks up to her and her husband says to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? You know why she's weeping? Because of what we just said. A natural desire to have a child had become an ultimate thing which was beyond her ability to attain and her rival was rubbing her nose in it. Hannah was in deep pain. But Hannah doesn't remain in pain. She doesn't. She escapes. How? How did Hannah escape? How did Hannah change? Something happened in verse 9 that the casual reader may not even pick up on. Verse 9 uh, says, after she had eaten, it says, you know, it's, it's, it's just tucked in there. It says that she stood up. So? Well, in, in Hebrew narrative, it means, when, when, it's, when you see that she, you know, someone stood up, it means they took action. They came to a decision in their mind, and now they're going forward. What action did she take? Well, she, in effect, was saying, you know what? Enough's enough. That's it. I am officially bowing out of the baby derby business. It's not that I don't want children. It's not that I don't think it's, it, you know, I think it's wrong to have children. But I have become enslaved to an idol that my culture has told me that I must bow down to for significance. And they have imposed this on me. And today, I am rejecting this idol. And by arising and going to pray to God, Hannah rejects the idols offered to her by her culture. She decided to, in her heart to have none of it anymore. And folks, I have to tell you something right now. You want to escape? That's where it starts. That's where it starts. Men, women. Real connection with God must sooner or later get to this point. It's recognizing not only the bad things I must repent for, but it's recognizing the good things being thrust upon me to worship and rejecting them. It's rejecting secondary things that I think ultimately will give me meaning and will save me. There's nothing wrong with a loving husband. There's nothing wrong with having children. But these things to her had become a trap. They had become an idol. They had become, in a sense, a form of slavery. So she prayed. She prayed. Here's what her prayer said, verse 11. Then it says, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, 
then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, when she calls, addresses the deity, almighty God, she's assuming something. She's assuming that he has all power in the universe. But the very fact that she's coming and making this petition also assumes in her mind, this is good theology, all-powerful, but she's also assuming that, you know what, he can and may want to do something. He may be the kind of God who will look down on this single obscure woman, this, this country woman, and, and that what matters to me matters to Almighty God. The, the, the God who has the mountains in dust bits on a scale knows exactly how much they weigh, Maybe he's concerned with me too. She is praying to a God and trusting a God who is infinitely mighty. And she's hoping that he's, he's infinitely tender all at the same time. It's good theology. Really good theology. She's remembering the biblical God that she had learned about. And she's pouring the needs of her heart into the reality of who God is. And she says, you give me a son, I'll give him to you to be used by you in full-time ministry. Now, you read that. I'm just cynical enough to see a scheming woman who's trying to make a bargain with God. I don't know, is it just me? Maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. It's probably just me. Uh, you know what? Uh, it's, it's, you know, maybe she's doing a little deal-making, trying to be a little manipulative. I mean, you've you got to give her points for shrewdness, you know, but, but I'm not entirely sure I see change here. Really not entirely sure. Um, when I say that, I realize, and did realize, that I had no idea what I was talking about. I had no idea what I was talking about. When she says that, what she is doing is really surrendering to God. If you wanted to go into ministry then, you had to be, a, there's, there's two ways you can go into full-time ministry. Number one, you could be born into the tribe of Levi. They were the priests. Or if you were of another tribe, you could become a Nazarite and take a Nazarite vow and you'd become a full-time assistant pastor or a f assistant priest, okay? You could be raised by a priest and you could learn from that priest. And the two marks, if you were going to become a Nazarite, you take a Nazarite vow, was number one, you, you don't cut your hair. And number two, you never drink strong drink. Those were the markers. Do you know what Hannah was doing right here? You know what she was doing? A Nazarite would never be able to contribute to the economy of the family. She, uh, you know, it, she wasn't going to be taken care of by her son in her old age. She knew that. He would then, he would be taken when he was a young boy, a young lad, five or six uh, years of age, and would be taken by the priest, and that priest then would become his, his mentor. For the rest of his life, as long as that, that priest lived. So she wasn't going to get any support. It was not going to help the economy. He was not going to go fight in the army. Because they were exempt from doing that to protect the nation. In other words, all the cultural reasons and emotional reasons to have a child would be gone if she kept her vow. All gone. So, why have a child then? <laughs> why have a child? Israelite women... Uh, had another reason why they had children. Sometimes it wasn't the premier reason, but it became the premier reason for Hannah. And here it is. 
Uh, they were told, God said to Abraham, I'm going to heal and save the world through your descendants. You remember that, right? I'm going to bless the world through, through your descendants. Okay, so every Jewish woman who had a, a, a child said, you know what? I am contributing, in a sense, to the healing of the world. Because if I, if, if I have a child and I raise that child to fear and honor God, there's, somebody, there's another voice, there's another herald. There's, some, there's someone else that God is going to use. Someone else, you know, all my life, you know, I wanted to, to be part of God's work. This is how I'm going to be part of God's work. Hannah has taken that, the theological reason, and he's, she's pushed it to the center. All my life, I've wanted a child for me. But, oh God, for the first time in my life now, I want a child for you. For you. I want a child that will work in your ministry. All my life I've wanted to be a mother for me, but now for you. Now in your presence, God, I want you to know that I want to bring life into the world, to bring real life to others, to bring salvation. You know, God, before I had asked you to be the means to my own ends, so that, you know, I could fulfill the cultural and emotional needs that I'd felt needed to be filled. But now, oh Lord, I don't look at you as a means to my personal ends. Now, God, your mission in the world to rescue those without hope and without help, that becomes my mission. That becomes my life. And having a son is now a means to that end. Hannah has shifted her center, shifted her self-image, her hope from having a child to being a part of God's mission in the world. Verse 17 says this. Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked from him. That's El Elkanon. Uh, Eli, excuse me, priest. And she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked the Lord for him. Well, that's great, right? That's, that's, a, that, that's a great way to end there. She prayed, she got a baby, and they all lived happily ever after, right? No, that's not right. That is not the order. It didn't say she prayed, then she got pregnant, then she got happy. You know what it says? It says she prayed, she got happy, even though she had absolutely no assurance that she would get pregnant. See, her life had changed, even though she hadn't received the thing that she had prayed for. And her face, it says, was no longer downcast. The Lord opened her womb, and she prayed, and she got happy, even though she didn't know what was going to happen. She had been liberated. You know what happened? She had been liberated from the culture. That's what it was. This isn't just for women. This is for everyone. By turning God into the center, not a means to get what she wanted, she was set free. And look what she says in chapter 2. It says, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. 
What was she delivered from? You know what she was delivered from? From the dead-end life where she bowed down to her cultural needs, which pressed continually in upon her, and the emotional needs that she pressed in upon herself. If Hannah had not made that turn, if she had a child when she wanted it, you know what? I, I referred to this before. She would have crushed him under the weight of her expectations, and he would have never been the savior of Israel that he was. Never. If Hannah had not made that turn, and she had that child, when she wanted that child, she would have crushed him under the weight of her own expectations, and it would have been over. And because she accepted her suffering, though, because she, she trusted in Almighty God, because she, she thought perhaps this Almighty God is also a merciful God, and she trusted Him for her future, she went through the suffering, and she became peaceful. And she became happy when she made that decision. You know what? And for Hannah, guess what? It was finally safe for her to have a child. Finally safe. In this instance, safe for her to have a child. God used the suffering and the sacrifice of Hannah to save her and to bring about the salvation for others. She became free of the idol system of the culture that she had been raised in. Look at it, it says in verse 4. The bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. Catch this. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. When Jesus Christ was led out, outside of town in Jerusalem, to that garbage heap and ignominiously crucified by the most disgraceful form of death at the time, he went out to that place in weakness and in disgrace. You know, the forerunners of the Messiah, if you look at a, at a pattern, all of them, you know, kind of they... They're strong, and they do the right thing, and they rise up, and they get the glory. Samuel, Samson, Gideon. They were strong, eventually, and they got the glory. So everyone said that the Messiah could not possibly be weak. There's no such thing as a weak Messiah. You know, the, the, all these guys were strong, and, 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 and they, they brought the glory. They were the forerunners. But they weren't looking at the four women of the Messiah, because over and over again, God has a, has, uh, gave a foretaste of the real gospel through the barren, through the rejected, through the discarded, through the unwanted woman. Sarah, <laughs> old, barren, crusty Sarah. Leah, the, 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 the wife that Jacob really didn't want. It was through them that God brought the royal 
messianic saving seed of Judah. Samson was born to a barren woman. Samuel to a disgraced and suffering woman. But through her, you know what came? Salvation. Salvation came. If you look at the four mothers, you would have understood when Isaiah said that the one who comes to save us will come in great weakness. Because this is what it said of him. That's what he wrote. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Not a lot of strength here, is it, folks? Am I wrong? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By turning God into the center and not a means to get what you want, you will become free. Because through his suffering and through his weakness, we are saved. You can see it in the women in the Old Testament. You can see it in the suffering servant. You can see it in Samuel's mother, not in Samuel. Until we come to the place that Hannah came to, we will forever be trying to measure up to our own expectations and our cultural expectations. And folks, we will never, ever, ever be free. Never. This week, when you pray, pray that God will replace the cultural and emotional centers that drive and motivate your actions with Christ. Pray this week that he would become the center. Because by turning God into the center and not a means to get what you want, you will 